Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Good morning. A very Merry Christmas to each of you. A Christmas. It is indeed a joy to be in the house of the Lord on the day of the Lord. To our online family, we love you. We hope you're doing good, feeling well. We sure miss you. We hope you're blessed. For those of you that are here this morning and for those of you that are online, we'd love for you to have one. But in your worship folder there, there's a little prayer card. And this is something that we like to do each year. And on the front it says, Brethren, pray for us. That is the words, the great words from the Apostle to the Thessalonican church. And I can tell you this, if the great Paul needed people to pray for him, we need people to pray for us. And uh, though it's the three of us, and Pauline, myself, and Abigail, who's still in our home, We'd like you to pray for all the staff. Please, there are two things, that uh, simple things to remember. Pray for our protection and pray for the power of God in our lives so that we can be a great uh, tool for the Lord. And so uh, thank you for praying for us. And uh, put that someplace where you'll remember, please. All right, well, this morning... We're going to go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, an unusual passage, although it shouldn't be, but it is a tremendous, tremendous doctrinal passage. Christmas begins with Christ. It is that most wonderful time of the year, folks, singing snowman, cinnamon and apple, tinsel and fruitcake, lights and mistletoe, and for most people, it is a good feelings attend this holiday. For some, though, they love to hate this holiday, and with them comes Christmas shaming. Opinion writer Zoe Beatty identified five types of scrooges that she's going to be avoiding this year. First of all, there's the very basic, basic hater, who, when it's November, says, it's still November and there's Christmas things. At any signs of Christmas, they roll their eyes at Bing before slinking off to binge on their favorite pie and self-loathing. Then there's the conspiracy theorist who says, it's all a marketing scam. They just want to bankrupt you so you'll take out a loan. Then there's the hater-hater. They hate their own birthday, too. Any holidays and puppies, too. They hate forced fun. Then there's the hipster-hater. Their celebration takes place before Christmas. They eat a vegan feast. They listen to rare Swedish Christmas tracks and never smile, of course, because that's so mainstream. Then there's the existential hater. They would love to actually love Christmas, but the reality is that this season of goodwill throws them into a spiral of self-loathing. They are reminded that another year is coming to a close, and look where they're at. Childhood past creeps up on them, a time when they had good hair. <laughs> well, there are probably shreds of truth in each of those things that sometimes we love to hate. But for the Christian, at its core, Christmas is nothing more and nothing less.
less than a wonderful historical celebration at the birth of Christ. Although some of the elements of Christmas have some similarity to pagan worship, we always hear something about that this time of the year, you can find reassurance this morning that a Christian Christmas predates any pagan idea. And it has always been separate. So don't listen to those people. They're the same kind of folks that don't understand that we celebrate the Lord's Day on the first day of the week. Now, it happens to be called Sunday. Sunday is a, a word in the English language that acknowledges the God of the sun, not our God, although he is the real God of the sun, but a, a pagan worship day. The fact of the matter is, just because we have church on Sunday doesn't mean we worship the sun, other than it's the S-O-N that we worship. Now, this morning, it is not Xmas, it is Christmas. It is not holidays, it is holy days. We are gathering today, reminding ourselves of the tremendous implications of the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On that first Christmas Eve, earth was mostly oblivious, oblivious to what was happening. I was thinking this morning as I was sitting there in my office, looked out the window for a moment and watched cars just speeding by. I was thinking, you know, that's really nothing different than 2,000 years ago when people just raced by and they did not even realize that Jesus, the Savior of the world, was born in that little stall. It is, however, oblivious to this world, but not to that innumerable and holy elect angels waiting in anticipation to worship and adore God manifest in the flesh. Every Christmas, I think we believers have the tendency to battle the fact that we, it's a fact of Christmas and that He came, but not realizing why He came. Did Jesus come to reveal the love of God? Of course He did. Did He come to bring peace and goodwill on earth? Yes. But actually, those are secondary reasons why Jesus, God's Son, came to earth from heaven's grandeur to earth's grave. Why did He do that? Well, we're going to find five reasons from the book of Hebrews why He did that in one glorious passage. And I look forward to sharing this with you this morning. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, if you would, please. Our heads are bowed. Father, we thank you for the glories of your birth. Thank you, Jesus, that you came for us. And I pray that today, Lord, you would just uh, collect our minds and thoughts, my especially, Lord. Help me to get in that uh, zone, Lord, that I look at your word and convey it. I want to be your vessel. In Jesus' name, amen. Christian author Aaron Hand correctly captured Christmas when he wrote, The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, came to earth for you and me. The salvation I could not afford, he paid for on Calvary. What could I ever give him that would thank him for his son? I'll confess and turn from my sin and live in victory mode. I often lose sight of Jesus because of Santa, Christmas, and trees. Jesus Christ is more than enough to grant me eternity. He's the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. He's the everlasting Father, and to think He came for me. He deserves no less than my all, though it's easy to give Him less. Though born in a humble stall, God sent to me His very best. 
And yet there is so much more. We're going to spend our time mostly in the book of Hebrews this morning. It's kind of a scary book for many people, but there are tremendous deep truths in the New Testament book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is the 24-ounce uh, ribeye of the New Testament, I will tell you. It is amazing. The idea of the book of Hebrews is that these first century believers, many of them had come out of non-Christ-centered Judaism, non-biblical Judaism, with all of its oppressive freedom stealers, disillusioning inconsistencies. The theme of the book of Hebrews is that true Bible faith is Christ-centered. It is not form-centered or ritual-centered. It is Jesus Christ-centered, and you need to have a personal relationship. The book of Hebrews is kind of like we talked about last week, where Jesus said, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. I know you think that they're all that, but I will tell you, they need to get back to the Bible. And that's what the book of Hebrews is saying. It is saying, folks, focus on Jesus, the God of the Bible. There are five glorious facts about Christmas that it reveals about Jesus Christ. Fact number one, he was our, and he is our reliever, a gracious substitute. All right, let's read verse 9 together. If you would, let's read it out loud. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 9. You have that? All right, let's read it together. Ready, begin. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. But we see Jesus. <laughs> I could stop right there and we could just preach the rest of the message on that. We see Jesus. What do you see? Some people see disease, troubles, but we see Jesus. Some people are always seeing all kinds of negative things, but we see Jesus. We see Jesus. Now notice the little phrase, who was made, this Jesus, the Son of God, was made a little lower than the angels. Now the word little can be a size comparison, but it can also have a time significance, and that's what it does here. In that it's reading, he was made for a little while or a little time, lower than the angels. Yes, for 33 years, just a little bit of time, he was made lower than the angels. What does that mean? Lower in quality. That's actually what it means. Because angels are above humans in their ability, their power, their strength, their wisdom. They're so much higher in quality. But humans have something that angels don't have. Humans have blood. Bible requires that the, because of the sin, the shedding of blood is required. So it says, He, Jesus, was made lower in quality for a time than the angels for a little bit of time so that he could, as it says, notice what it says, he could taste death. That's what God gave him that opportunity so he could suffer death. Something an omnipotent deity could never do. He had to become human. Why did God allow himself such a downgrade? Notice what the next part of that verse says. That he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. 
The first and greatest reason why Jesus came was to die. Not as a martyr, not as an example of endurance, but as our reliever, a gracious substitute. And why do we need a substitute? Well, you've got to love that wonderful Old Testament, straightforward book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 18, to verse number 20, that prophet stepped on a lot of Jewish toes, I will tell you. Poor and rich, little known and famous. And notice what he proclaimed very simply. You can't get any more straightforward and simple than this. The soul that sinneth, it must die. Perfect justice is that all sin must be punished by death. Today, the cry in America from so many groups is, we demand justice. But sadly, it actually seems that so many are actually demanding preferential treatment. But let me reassure these, and let me reassure all of us, justice is coming. Each of us will stand before a holy God. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. No doubt about it, justice is coming. Now, we can bear that sin ourselves, and if we do bear the punishment of our sin, and there should be no question as to the legitimacy of the fact that we've sinned. Over the years, I've talked to a lot of people. As far as I know, I've only talked to one person who ever said, I've never really sinned. And he was a little bit out there, I will tell you that. Now, he was a lot out there. But the fact of the matter is, we have all sinned. And as a result of that, the Bible says, we will die. Justice that we demand, well, guess what? It's coming. We will die physically. We will die spiritually. We will die eternally. We will be sentenced to an eternal hell without God. Now, folks, that's exactly why God came and gave us Christmas. God's mercy looked into this world. He saw people that were going to die without Him stepping in. And He just said, I cannot allow people to die without giving them the opportunity to escape. Jesus came then as my substitute, my replacement. He came as my reliever. He was nailed on that cross. And when He did so, my He died my death. He paid my penalty. The perfect one became the punishment. Now let's notice the depth of His substitutionary death. Notice what that verse says. He tasted death for every man. The death that Jesus tasted, and by the way, it says He tasted it. It wasn't just a little whiff that He kind of smelled. It wasn't a, a fake death, as some might imagine. No, it was real death, total death. Imagine every possible scenario that it covered. It says he tasted death for every man. Oh, no, Pastor, you can't mean that. I mean, it can't. Surely the book of Hebrews doesn't say that. Every person, every person's death, yes. Jesus tasted death for every person. Now, testing, uh, tasting death for someone who lives a very nice and holy life may not seem too bad. Tasting death for someone who's just a reprehensible sinner? Folks, think this morning of the most heinous and disgusting deed that someone might be guilty of. And the Bible says he tasted death for every man. I want you to know this morning that Jesus tasted your death and my death. It makes no difference if we're a, on a scale of 1 to 10, we're a 5, a 6, a 10, whatever. Jesus tasted death for every man. 
And nobody asked him to do this. Only he did. Because we humans don't have enough sense to get out of the rain. That's why the Apostle Paul was absolutely incredulous. In Romans chapter 3 and verse number 11, he said, There is none that understands. There is none that seek after God. From the beginning of my life to the end of my life, I've discovered nobody seeks God. Nobody seeks God. It doesn't happen. Thank God that Jesus seeks us. Because if that wasn't the case, not one person would ever go to heaven. Notice what this verse says then. It says, why then did Jesus come? If we didn't want him, if we didn't seek him, if we obviously didn't care about whether we died or lived, we just were oblivious to the whole thing. Why did he come? Why did he come as our reliever? Why did he offer to pay our debt? Well, look at this verse again, back in Hebrews chapter 2. That he, by the grace of God, that's why he tasted death for every man, by the absolute, undeserved, unmerited grace of God. God didn't look at you and I and say, oh, you're so beautiful. I should die for you. He didn't look at you and I and say, you're so good. You're so kind. You're such a great person. I'm just going to die for you. You know exactly the opposite. Christmas is solely on the basis of the grace of God. Now, we've been told this week that it's going to be a very dark winter. And if you don't get vaccinated or boosted, it's going to be super dark. Well, I will tell you about a dark scenario. Without the Jesus of Christmas, this world is pitch black. We better thank God this morning we have Jesus because because of Jesus we have light. Amen. In 1832, Harvard professor Charles Folan, by the way, back in the days when the Ivy League had some morals, in 1832, it is said that Professor Folan lighted the first Christmas tree in America. They used candles along with gilded eggshells and candies to decorate the tree. Why did he do that? Well, he was from Germany, and he brought that old world German tradition. That was a beautiful Christian ceremony commemorating Christ as the light of the world. And he is in this dark world. I'm thankful that Jesus is our reliever. He is the light of the world, a gracious substitute. Five glorious facts about Christmas. Number one, he's our reliever, a gracious substitute. Number two, he was our pioneer. Kind of a strange phrase, but a singular trailblazer. Now look at verse 10. We are told that he is our captain of our salvation. Let's read verse 10 together. All right, ready to begin. For it became him for whom are all things, and by him are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Let's go back over that. For it became him. Who is the him? That's God the Father. You can just circle that and put God the Father. It became God the Father, for whom are all things. Everything goes back to God. And eventually everything will come to God. Then it says, bringing many sons to glory. Here we find God's clear design. Folks, there's no hidden agenda with God. His design, bring humans to glory. That's what He's here for. Get people into heaven. What is the church here for? It's to do our best to get people into heaven and hopefully to get a little bit of heaven into you. 
And then it says to make the captain of their salvation perfect. That word means possible. Jesus made it possible. How? Through his sufferings. Now, the word captain is an interesting Greek word. It is a Greek word, archegos. Archegos, if you were to look at the English rendering of it, is A-R-C-H-E-G-O-S, I believe it is. But it has the word arch. Sometimes, you know, if you're watching some movie and it says, this is our arch enemy. That means their number one enemy. That's kind of the same phrasing here in that it means a leader or number one or author. Or, as it says here, captain. Or even, actually, the most, uh, most accurate rendering is pioneer. It is called, for example, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1, he is the author and finisher of the faith. He is a pioneer. He is something and someone who set the standard, who made something possible that others can follow. The first drive through restaurant, do you know what it was? Well, actually changed. It wasn't actually McDonald's. It was actually Jack in the Box, 1951 in San Diego. There they began to sell hamburgers for 18 cents. Thank God for Jack in the Box. Uh, we all do. Isn't that amazing? 70 years later, we're still going to drive-thrus. Folks, we desperately needed someone to blaze a trail to heaven because everybody failed up to Jesus and everybody has failed since Jesus. Jesus is the captain. He's the trailblazer. He is the one who opens up the path so that we can get to heaven. Nobody can get to heaven on their own. Way too many obstacles. It's an impossible jungle out there. But Jesus pioneered the way through all the crime and the craziness, and he made salvation perfect or possible through his sufferings. How did he make it possible? Through his sufferings. Do we realize this Christmas morning that Jesus Christ on Calvary's Mount gathered up all of eternity's punishment for every person who's ever lived. You name them. Every person, the billions and billions that have lived, the billions of people that are living and ever will live, and then in three hours, He paid for the sufferings of all mankind on a blood-spattered cross, and then He walked away a risen Savior. Now, folks, that is power this morning. That is a pioneer, I will tell you. Thank God what Jesus did for us. America's founding fathers, many of them were wonderful Christians. Don't listen to these uh, people who are trying to rewrite the good uh, Christian history of America. But one of the best was John Adams. He was our second president. George Washington was also a fine Christian man. But here's what John Adams said. The Christian religion is above all religions that have ever prevailed or ever existed in ancient or modern times. It is the religion of wisdom, virtue, equity, and humanity. Well said, John Adams. Today, 200 plus years later, we stand on the shoulders of wonderful founding fathers like him. He was a pioneer for America's unique history Never been anything like it in the history of the world since or before. We stand on their shoulders. They pay, many of them, especially those signers of the Declaration of Independence, paid the ultimate price. I give you that illustration because 2,000 years ago, 
Jesus Christ did the same thing for us. He paid our price. He was our pioneer. And today, we stand on His shoulders. Folks, God the Father had us dead to rights. We were all categorically guilty. Each one of us sentenced to back-to-back death sentences. There was no possibility of parole. When our our chaos, our pioneer, our author of our salvation, our trailblazer became our salvation's captain. Something that nobody could have, and frankly, nothing that nobody ever would have ever done had it not been for Jesus. Thank the Lord. He descended that we might ascend. He was born that we might be born again. He became a servant that we might become sons. He was forsaken that we may not be forgotten. He died that we might live. He came down that we might be caught up. Thank God. He was our pioneer. Number one, he was our reliever, a gracious substitute. Number two, he was our pioneer, a singular trailblazer. And number three, he was our sanctifier, a loving brother. To be honest, it's not always easy to do the right thing. Would you admit that this morning? I would say we would. There's a story of a father of five who came home with one toy. He summoned all of his children together and asked which one should be given this one present. Who is the most obedient, ever talks back to mom, and does everything he or she is told to do, he inquired. There was a silence on the part of the children. And then a chorus of voices. Uh, You play with it, Daddy. (laughs) Ah, smart man. Yep, it's not always easy to do the right thing. But there's only one guaranteed way of righteousness, frankly. And that is if Jesus gives us righteousness. Look at verse 11. Let's read it together, all right? It's a tremendous verse. Ready, begin. For both he that sanctifieth And they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Wow. For both he that sanctifieth, Christ is the sanctifier. That means he makes us holy. That's what the word means, set apart. Our chorus uh, group up here was called set apart. They like that term. I do too. Christ makes people holy. None of us make us holy. You can't light a candle and get holy. You can't rub some beads and get holy. We're going to baptize in a few minutes, and as wonderful as that is, it is not going to make you eternally holy. Now, practically holy, in a sense, maybe. But here's what this says. It says, Christ is the sanctifier. Then it says, they who are sanctified are one. Wait a second. What? We actually become one with Christ? Yes. When we get saved, Jesus comes into our heart. One thing that we sometimes don't say maybe as often as we should is not only does he come into our heart, but we come into him. We, be, we are placed into Christ, actually, is what the Bible says. So that means we actually become one with Christ. If I'm one with Jesus, that means his blood is my blood. His genes are my genes. His DNA is my DNA. And that's exactly what he's saying here. He's saying, because I make you holy... I'm not ashamed to call you my brethren. You mean I'm the brother of Jesus? When God the Son died on the cross, God the Father received that as full payment for anyone who would come into Christ. That's why 
Horatio Spafford said it so well in that great hymn, It is well with my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Folks, if that wasn't enough, if it wasn't enough that He took away my sin, put me into Christ, then the fact is it says He gave me holiness. How did I get holiness? I literally got the holiness of Jesus. That's called the imputed righteousness of Christ. You talk about an extreme Christmas gift. I read this week about someone giving their daughter a house. I thought, man, that's an amazing gift. I got something a whole lot better than a house. We got holiness here. God said he gives you his holiness. Paul was blown away by this monumental truth, knowing all the deeds he had committed, the horrible deeds. But look what it says in 2 Corinthians. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. (laughs) Imagine for a few moments that this little carved, this is sin. Now, don't look at my picture and say this is sin. But anyway, um, this is sin. This sin, this is me over here. And my, this is Jesus. My sin, it says, was laid all on Jesus. I, I am free from sin. But that's just half the equation. Now let's say this is righteousness. Jesus had righteousness, and he put his righteousness on me. That's absolutely unbelievable. God came, took on a body, died a sacrificial death, completed the will of God. I was unable to do the righteousness towards God. You talk about an incredible gift. Jesus put his blood in me. I have his genes. I have his DNA. That's why Jesus said, guess what? You are my brother. You are, We're family. I mean, imagine someone that you just so look up to came and said, man, we're family. We're family. Pauline and I had the privilege of going to England on one of our missionary trips. And we took a day to do a little sightseeing. And one of the things we did was go there to the Tower of London and some of the places there. One of the things they have are these guys named uh, Beef Eaters. Have you ever seen those guys? They have those funny looking outfits on. And they are the guards that have been guarding that castle for years. Well, I want you to imagine just for a moment that the Queen of England, She commissions a group, an entourage of these beef eaters to get on a private jet plane. And they fly over here. They end up in Stockton down there. They land in Stockton. And then a big, giant limousine parade. All kinds of limousines come up West Lane here. They come to the church here. And they come up to the door. And they come inside. Here's this entourage of people. And one of those beef eaters comes and holds a silver plate. And on that silver plate is this amazing, beautiful envelope, gold gilded. And they say, is Tim Pollock here? Yes, he is. Beth would be in there saying, Pastor, you've got to come out here. And uh, I come out there and hear these limousines and these guys in their outfits. And they come up and very formally say, are you Timothy James Pollock? I am. They said, the Queen of England has sent me. What? Yes. Please read the envelope. What's inside the envelope? And so I begin to read it. And it begins to say, Master Tim Pollock. 
we have discovered upon our uh, looking at all the records that you are part of the royal English line. And due to you are all the royalties, benefits, and from this day forward, you are now the Prince of Edinburgh. What? Why? Why? Unbelievable! I am rela- I have royal blood inside of me. Now, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Trust me. We did actually go to Scotland. And in Scotland, the Pollock is a pretty prominent name. And in Glasgow, there's a Pollock Castle. I was impressed. Yeah, I'm probably like second or third down the line there, you know. So, Well, come to find out, Pollock actually, you know, in Scottish and Gaelic, the word loch means lake, Pollock Lake. And it just means swampy lake is what that means, Pollock. And it wasn't named for a person. It was a name for the swamp around the place. So I thought, oh, great. No wonder Apostle Paul said, avoid genealogies. Okay, I got it, Lord. Folks, you and I have been placed into a royal family. The best of all, we have been placed into the family of Jesus Christ. We have royal blood in our veins. We have been given the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's not a license to sin. That's a limit on sin. That gives me a high calling to live up to the what God's given me. That's why Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 14, I press towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's a high calling. It was on a tree that God hung His greatest gift to mankind. It was on a Christmas tree then that the symbolic of the broken curse. Its evergreen branches represent everlasting life. And our exchange of gifts isn't a surrender to commercialism. No, it's a testimony of God's love. His greatest gift. I've been sanctified, adopted, and placed into the family of God. I am holy. I have righteous blood. Folks, I've got God's DNA. He was our believer. He was our pioneer. He was our sanctifier. And thankfully, number four, he is our conqueror, a living victor. Folks, I like to win. I don't win a lot, but when I do, I love it. I love it just going to Starbucks and when I get up there to the person, she said, the person ahead of you paid for your drink. I'm like, wow, thank you. And a lot of times they drive off, you know, and I'm thinking I want to, you know, hey, th- thank you, whoever you were, that's wonderful. Folks, it's fun to win. Well, you're going to love this verse. Look at verse 14. Let's read it together. Ready, begin. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself took part of the same. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 14. Partakers of flesh and blood. Who would that be? Well, that's us, right? We all have flesh and blood, I think. You all look like you have flesh and blood. Come, you look a little dead, but um, I hope you have blood inside of you. It says uh, that he took part of the same. God the Son did the same. He took on flesh and blood, just like you and I. Why? Why did he do that? Look at the last part of the verse. That through death, he could destroy death. He could destroy him. (laughs) Him that had the power of death. And in case we're wondering who that is, that's the devil. The devil. One thing that Satan has on the human race is death. 
Now, Satan knows the Bible. He knows that the wages of sin is death. If devil can keep us living in sin until we die, he's got us forever. Someone had to beat the devil. Someone had to beat the devil. Well, guess what? Every person that's ever lived died. They can't win. If you die, you can't win. But we all die. So someone had to be able to beat death, to beat the devil. Today, it is just so frustrating to me. <laughs> and I notice so many hearing all these, uh, sometimes seems like just junk scientists who say, we're going to beat disease. Folks, I will tell you, nobody beats disease. We're winning against the virus, okay? Another one is going to follow right after it. Because every time, folks, they find a cure for one disease, another one pops up. And that is never going to change. I tell you, that is never going to change. They will never find a cure for all diseases because it just keeps coming. Why? Because there is a death sentence on mankind. Mankind has never been able to win against a virus. It's never happened in the past. It'll never happen in the future. They say we're going to win by doing this or doing that. I promise you folks, there is only one way to win against a virus. And that is to be related to Jesus Christ. When we accept Him as our Lord and Savior, He has beaten death. He beat the devil. Jesus beat the devil. And by the way, when did it become all right for Christians to be afraid of death? Now, I'll be okay. I'll be, be honest. I'm not looking forward to the process. <laughs> I mean, I, I must admit. But I will say, I am looking forward to the promise that I'm going to go to heaven. You are not scaring me with heaven. People say, you shouldn't meet in church. Well, then don't meet. But I will tell you one thing. I am going to go out in first class <laughs> if I'm going at all. Because Jesus gave us the power to beat death. He's the only one that through death, he destroyed him that had the power of death. I'm telling you, after three days, he was in the grave. And after three days, he exploded out of that grave. And those shackles of death fell off of him like just paper. Jesus broke the devil. In those earthly hours, that's why he said in John chapter 14... To his disciples, he said, because I live, John 14, 19, you shall live. He absolutely obliterated Satan's power of death. Don't miss it this Christmas. The birth of Jesus into this earth was the fact that God the Father was beating the devil. He was beating at him his own game. He won over death. December 14, 1903. After many attempts, the Wright brothers were successful finally at getting their flying machine off the ground. Thrilled, they telegraphed this message to their sister, Catherine. We have actually flown 120 feet. We will be home for Christmas. Catherine, their sister, hurriedly went to the editor of the local newspaper and showed him the message. He glanced at it and said, oh, how nice. The boys will be home for Christmas. <laughs> he told we miss the big news. No, man had flown. Folks, don't miss the big news this Christmas. Death is conquered, and it's conquered forever. Jesus did that. He is our conqueror. He is our reliever. He is our pioneer. He is our sanctifier. He is our conqueror. And number five, 
He is our minister. Thank God we have a sympathetic high priest. If you've ever met some famous people, some of them are just the most down-to-earth, amazing, wonderful people. And others of them, (laughs) you don't want to be around them. They're not very nice people. But Jesus, always amazing, always compassionate. Look what it says in verse 17. Let's read it together, please. Hebrews 2, verse 17. Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of his people. He was in like us in every single way. Why? So that he could be compassionate. Say, well, you don't know what it's like to be tempted. Jesus does. You don't know what it's like to be hungry. Jesus does. You don't know what it's like to hurt. Jesus does. You don't know what it's like to lose somebody you love. Jesus does. Jesus is a sympathetic high priest. Now, as a priest, the Old Testament priest had the ear of God and he had the ear of man. He was a mediator. Jesus is our mediator. Thank God we have somebody who's compassionate, who knows how we feel, that has the ear of God the Father. We live in a brutal world, folks. We do. It is a brutal world out there. And honestly, compassion is in a a short stay, I'll tell you. But notice what it says. He's merciful. Willingness to forego what we deserve. He's a high priest. He is the amazing go-between God and man. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He had every partly, everything that we suffered, he has suffered. You know, when you go through something afterwards, a lot of times you have a lot more compassion for others. Sometimes you say, you know what, a little bit of mercy here. (laughs) Yes, amen. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit has wanted us to drink in in this passage. A few chapters later in the book of Hebrews, look what it says. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. This is not some rich uh, cleric sitting up in his uh, ivory castle. No. He was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, thank God, verse 16, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help. Folks, our high priest is not aloof, unapproachable, or harsh. He is not an angry deity. He is touched. He is touched. No matter what you feel today, bullied teen, fearful child, shamed young adult, cast off, misunderstood, lonely, hated, you name it, Jesus said, come boldly to the throne of grace. He is a high priest who knows it, he's felt it, and he's touched, he's compassionate, he's part of us, he are, uh, we have the same DNA, he He's our priest. He said, I will, I'm there for you. This Christmas, come boldly. May I suggest this week, why don't you take the Bible, open it to the book of Luke, as Pastor Luke did at the beginning of the service. Open it to chapter 2 of the book of Luke. And maybe sit it there at the face of your Christmas tree or set it up on the mantle. But all week long, when the children walk by or whoever walks by, and you see that open Bible, and you see, you read There in Luke chapter 2, remind yourself that Christmas begins with Christ. It ends with Christ. It is all about Christ giving us that victory, that great love and forgiveness. Who art thou, precious little babe, nestled in the hay? 
God I am, come to earth this day. Why didst thou come, sweet little babe, nestled in the hay? To die I came, the price of sin to pay. Whose sin, tender little babe, nestled in the hay? Yours it was that brought me down today. This week, when you look at the manger, look at it completely different than you ever have before. Jesus came so that we might have eternal life. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning. How we thank God for the amazing, wonderful services today. Now with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, each one that's here, let me ask you to stand with me at this time. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.